You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 650. Never underestimate the power of denial. Alan Ball. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters, David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouris, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook and of course audiobook if you want to order it just head over to www.filmbizbook.com that's filmbizbook.com well guys we have on the show legendary oscar winning screenwriter and showrunner alan ball alan won the oscar for his first screenplay a little film called american beauty back in the early 2000s and then went on to work in television, creating one of the most beloved HBO shows ever, Six Feet Under, and then followed that up with the hit True Blood. Alan and I had a wonderful conversation about his process, his challenges, what his challenges are currently today of trying to get products made in today's landscape, and so, so much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Alan Ball. I'd like to welcome to the show, Alan Ball. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Alan. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate you, man. I've been a fan of yours for a long, long time. Uh, Six Feet Under, my wife and I were obsessed. And we we caught it after it went off the air, and we just binged the entire show, <laughs> which is the only way to watch, truly, that show, is just, just to sit there and just enjoy it all at once. And yeah. uh, and we were I, I was True Blood, of course, and American Beauty, and so many things you've done over the years. But my very first question to you, sir, is why and how did you get into this insanity that is the film industry? Well, I wanted to be a playwright. Uh, I majored in theater when I was going to a college, and uh, I started a theater company. I started two theater companies, actually. And um, I was I was writing plays. I was working uh, for Adweek magazine during the day, living in New York. Uh, and then uh, our theater company would put on plays in basements, you know, and uh, off dark nights for theaters. And uh, and um, I wrote a play called Five Women Wearing the Same Dress about bridesmaids at a wedding in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it got a, it got produced off Broadway, off, off Broadway, to be honest. And, um, somebody, uh, from Carsey Warner TV, uh, a man named David Tochterman saw it and, uh, and suggested that, uh, they hire me to write for sitcoms. And uh, I got I got a job offer to write for the second season of Grace Under Fire, 
And uh, I figured, well, how many times is this going to happen? And the theater company I was working with in New York was more of a hobby for most of the people in it than it was actually pursuing, you know, what they want to do with their lives. I mean, it started out that way, but then as the years went by, people's day jobs turned into careers, people started having children. Um, And so I thought, well, how many times is this going to happen? And I came out to Los Los Angeles, I think it was probably around 1996 or 97, and uh, started working uh, in television. And that was where, you know, that's that was where it all started. What was what was the culture shock of going from playwright to a writer's room? Um, well, first of all, in, in the theater, everybody has a, a certain respect for the text and a certain respect for the writing that just did not exist in in at least on the shows that I worked on. Writing was just viewed as disposable. And uh, um, I remember, you know, we would we would have a table read on Monday morning and there would be a joke that would kill. And then we'd have the run through on Tuesday and it wouldn't it wouldn't kill as much because people had heard it. You know, it didn't uh, it wasn't a surprise. And then when the network came on Wednesday for the run through, they'd go, well, that joke doesn't work anymore. And you're like, "Mm, (laughs) it does work. It just doesn't work for you because you've heard it. And then we'd have to stay and write a whole new script. And then on uh, on show night, when the show was being filmed, you know, the the new joke would do okay. And then uh, everybody would huddle and they'd say, let's go back to the to the table read joke. And they would and it would kill because the audience had never heard it before. Um, It was also uh, uh, sort of shocking to me. I mean, this was so long ago, um, but, uh, you know, there was a there was there was a level of political correctness, for lack of a better term, that was prevalent in the theater when I worked in the theater. Um, Whereas when I worked in. uh, When I started working on Grace Under Fire, that writer's room, anything could be said and things that wouldn't that would get a lot of people in trouble uh, today. I mean, I remember. one of the writers, a guy who I love, actually, um, said, you know, at one point he said, if it was raining whores, I'd get hit by a fag. And (laughs) which is funny. I mean, mean, to be fair, to be fair, that is a funny gag, a funny joke, but but, I can understand how the Twitterverse might not accept that right now. Well, at the time I was like, wow, Wow. I I didn't, I'm, I'm not used to people who you know talk like that so you know but it took some getting used to um so that was the biggest culture shock and also i think you know working multiple seasons you start to just feel like the work is so disposable Mm -hmm. you know it's like okay there's you know Sybil got a bad haircut and it reverberates through well Sybil was the show i worked on after grace under fire Mm -hmm. Um, you would, you know, you would spend all this time on this 22 minutes and then it's done and then you're doing it again. And basically it's just like, you know, figuring out ways for a bunch of people in designer clothing to, to insult each other. And I sort of felt like this isn't about anything and it really wasn't, um, you know what I mean? And it sort of frustrated it frustrated me a lot because I felt like my work, which had always been something that I didn't get paid for, but that I was really personally invested in, um, had become just, you know, like punching a clock and doing factory work. And it, and I started to feel really disgusted with myself. And ultimately that led to me writing uh, American Beauty because I just had to write something that I cared about and that I felt like had something to say about something, even if just to me. 
Now, and that's and so that I, I, as you were saying the story, I'm like, this must have been what led up to American Beauty because it's around that same time that you were writing it. I always like to ask this question because a lot of people think that, uh, you know, you just sit down for the first time, like the, the legendary Stallone Rocky script. Oh, I wrote it in a weekend and I won the Oscar. Uh, how many, <laughs> and, and he actually has said, he goes, I wrote the first draft in a weekend, but I, I beat the hell out of that thing for the next handful of months. But yeah. so. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. For people listening uh, to kind of take the delusion away, how many scripts, how many things had you written, either plays or, or sitcoms or other scripts, had you written before you tackled American Beauty? Well, I had written a bunch of sitcom scripts, but, you know, I hadn't set. I mean, I wrote a, a bunch of sitcom first drafts, but the sitcoms I worked on got rewritten by uh, an entire room of people. Mm -hmm. um, I had written several one-act plays. I had written uh, a, a full-length play, the, the Bridesmaid play. Um, but uh, And I had written a screenplay because I wanted to just teach myself if I could, if I could do it, if I could write in, in the medium. Mm -hmm. And I had written that before I moved out here. Um, so I had, you know, I, and I had been, I guess, you know, that I had written a fair amount of stuff. Uh, but in terms of writing American Beauty, that was my second screenplay and my first produced screenplay. And, and how did American Beauty come to, like, come to life? Like, how did that story, because it's such a, you know, such a brilliant story and the inner and inner the, the way the characters work with each other and you know obviously how it was directed and how it was produced was you know magical as well but it all starts with the text how did it even come to life how did the idea germinate well when i was living in new york and i was working with my theater company there was the i don't know if you remember this you probably maybe were not even born by uh, yeah but there was a there was a big um trial going on uh and there this long island uh guy his name was joey butterfuco oh i'm i'm older i'm old enough sir i know who joey okay. butterfuco is <laughs> <laughs> so the whole joey butterfuco amy fisher um thing was happening and i remember they were selling comic books outside the the building that i worked um and and they were these weird comic books and on on the cover was Amy Fisher looking all virginal, Catholic schoolgirl, and Joey Butterfuco at the door, leering at her with a big beer belly and wearing a white, you know, you know, a white, white, white beater, yeah, yeah, yeah. and having a beer and looking at her all monstrously. And then you turn, you flip the comic book, and on the other side, there's Joey Butterfuco standing at the door with his shirt all buttoned up and a tie, and he's going to work, and he looks like a good husband and a good Christian. And Amy Butterfuco is all tarted up and looks like a slut trying to seduce him. Right. Um, and I remember thinking, the truth lies somewhere in between that, and we'll never know. We will never know what happened. And um, and uh, and uh, so then when I moved to uh, L.A., uh, I had written. I was working on TV. Um, Actually, I'd written two screenplays before I wrote American Beauty. I did a rewrite on this, this romantic comedy about two divorce lawyers who fell in love with each other, who had been married before, but they were divorced now, but they fell back in love with each other. And um, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I, my agent, uh, I switched agents because my agent left his agency and it was, and it was a time, it was time for me to kind of get better agents. And I had dinner with him and, I, and he said, I need you to write a new script because everybody's read these two scripts and nothing has happened with them. So I need to write a, I need you to write a new script to reintroduce you to the town. And I said, OK, well, I've got these ideas here. One, this is pretty standard romantic comedy. Two, here's the second pretty standard uh, romantic comedy. And I was pitching these to him. And then I said, and then there's this movie. I don't even know how to characterize it. There's this, you know, this couple in the suburbs and their daughter. And and there's a guy next door with a video camera. And, you know, and and 
I I just expected his eyes to sort of glaze over because it was not I couldn't you know it wasn't like a one sentence pitch. It's not a great it's not a great pitch. It's not a great pitch. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and he said that's the one you should write. And I said really uh, why? And he said because that's obviously the one that you feel the most passionate about. Later, he told me I had no idea that I could sell it. I just thought we'd have a really interesting writing sample. <laughs> uh, so that's how that came about. And so I worked on it for about I I was doing uh, the sitcom Sybil by then. And uh, there was this big meltdown on the staff and a bunch of people quit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to quit. And they said, please stay for one more season. And they offered me so much money uh, at the time for me that I thought, well, okay, I'll stay and I'll just bank this money and then I'll write the great American screenplay. But I hated the work I was doing on Sybil and I hated, I hated it so much and I was filled with so much rage, um, you know, mostly at myself for having accepted, you know, another season on that. And uh, I couldn't wait. I just, you know, I would come home at like, you know, midnight, two in the morning, and um, I would sit down at my computer and I would just pour all my rage into the screenplay. And so when the the script gets sent out to town and and then you've got, uh, if I remember, was Spielberg was, was, was he a producer on that? Or it was DreamWorks, if I'm not mistaken, DreamWorks. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Spielberg was involved. And I mean, when all of this, this magic happened of, you know, the filmmakers behind it and, and Spielberg and, and, and what were you feeling like? Because at this point you were really just a, a sitcom writer, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So you weren't like, you know, you weren't any big time screenwriter or anything like that. So Not what what was it like for you going through that process? I'm assuming you met Steven and you sat down and had conversation. Like this must have been a whirlwind experience for you. It was crazy. Um, you know, I have I, the script went out and it got passed on by most everybody. But then there were a few people who wanted to meet with me and who and um, DreamWorks was one of them. And I went over to DreamWorks and I met with uh, Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen, who were the producers. And uh, Bob Cooper, who was, uh, I believe, the head of production over there, and they were talking about it, and then uh, and how much they loved it, and you know that the, they really wanted to do it, and uh, and I had gotten a, a I had gotten a, a phone call from my agent the day before saying Steven Spielberg's reading the script, so let's wait until he reads it to you know decide where we're going to go, and so I met with Dan and. Bruce at DreamWorks and Bob and I was walking back out to my car and Dan and Bruce were following me, you know, saying, you know, just they read they were really passionate about it and they really wanted to do it. And um, then I see Steven Spielberg coming out and walking towards us. And I was like, oh, OK, I'm about to meet Steven Spielberg. Just act normal because <laughs> I because I felt like a big geek and. Um, and he said, oh, hi, you know, he said, I really love you. They introduced me and he said, I really loved your script. Uh, why haven't I heard of you? And I said, well, I've been working on sitcoms, you know, and he said, well, you should only be writing screenplays and you should only be writing your own screenplays. And that was an amazing thing to hear from, you know, a filmmaker like him. Um, and then through the whole process seemed just sort of charmed. You know, uh, I I met Sam Mendez. I went to see Cabaret uh, on Broadway, which was running at the time that he had directed. And I really liked how he had put his stamp on on it. But it was it was always in service of the story. It wasn't mm -hmm. like, you know, here's some directorial flourish that I put in here because it's cool. Everything was always in service of the story and and the characters. Um, and then I met with him and we immediately hit it off and we immediately, you know, found, realized we were both sort of on the same page about the movie. Um, I. And then, by the way, that was and that was that was the first movie he directed, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So he had a first time, quote unquote, first time writer, first time director yep. with Spielberg and DreamWorks pushing it. This is a, this is a unicorn of a story, essentially. I know. I know. Everybody kept saying to me throughout the entire process, you know, it's not always like this. <laughs> right. It just and I have it, since it, learned, no, it is not. <laughs> it is not always like that. 
Uh, but then Sam was, you know, we were talking casting and Sam was like, you know, I, I, I personally see Kevin Spacey and Annette Benning, And I was like, okay, get them. That's great. <laughs> sure. Why not? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it went into production relatively quickly. Um, and, uh, and the whole thing was felt sort of charmed. You know? well, so, so let me ask you, so, you know, obviously the movie came out and it was, a, it was a big hit and it's such an interesting movie because it's, it's a hard sell. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's not an oh, yeah. easy trailer. It's not an easy, the poster was like, what? It's like, it, it, it all was extremely, you know, unique. And so yeah. outside of a Hollywood studio, can you imagine Hollywood studio doing that today? Like that wouldn't even, there's no way a Hollywood studio would release a movie like that in a major way today uh, in the way that the studios are right now. Right. But so let me ask you then, once it got out and, you know, the Oscar showed up and you're there at the night and you're, I have to, did you think you had a shot in the world to win an Oscar? Well, I did because I had won a bunch of other awards. Uh, oh, through the, the whole Guild. through award season, yeah, through the award season. I had hey. won the Writers Guild Award. I had run a, I had won a Golden Globe. Uh, so I was like, this might actually happen. Um, I had a flask of whiskey in my tuxedo pocket, which I <laughs> hit throughout the night because it was so overwhelming. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really weird, especially once once the award season thing started. And DreamWorks started sending me to Santa Barbara Film Festival, the, this particular conference where screenwriters are talking. And I just said, yeah, I, I did everything. Um, and it, it became very strange. For a while, it became like my job was just being me and being the, sc the screenwriter of American Beauty and talking about it at, at uh, panels and film festivals. and. Uh, and, uh, you know, on radio stations and I got interviewed by CBS this morning and and it was crazy. it was crazy. It was it was really sort of insane, uh, but fun, you know, in a you know, it all it, 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 it was an experience that I will both treasure and feel like I'm lucky I survived that. Because I think that kind of attention can make you go crazy, especially early in your career. Like if you're yeah. if you're young screenwriter, young director, young actor who gets that kind of attention, yeah. Uh, like yeah, I mean you worked with Anna Paquin, who she was one of the youngest to ever win an Oscar. It can yeah. destroy a person that right. kind of that kind of attention, that kind of love, and you're the best, you're the best. You start believing that hype, and all of a sudden you just derail. Uh, well, especially it, if you're like a neurotic person who was always right. for that without ever getting it. Um, but I yeah. was lucky that I was in, you know, I was like 42, 43, 44. So I wasn't, I think if it had happened in my twenties, I would have gone crazy and probably uh, become like a, a Coke addict or something. Right. Exactly. And, and any success at that young age is so, so, so difficult. Uh, yeah. So you win the Oscar. Uh, I always look at this question from Oscar winners. How did the town treat you? What was that? What was that? Because that's now the, the next whirlwind of the water bottle tour. I'm assuming you're starting to take meetings all around town. And what's your next project? And they're throwing like, what do you want? What do you want? Anything. So you got a golden ticket for a short window of time, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Mm -hmm. Almost. So mm -hmm. how did that how did it work for you? How did you capitalize on on that time in your career? I noticed that when I went to meetings, uh, people would, people acted like what I, what I was saying was worth listening to. Um, prior to American Beauty, prior to, the, I would go to these meetings and, you know, talk about, you know, I remember I got a script uh, and I went in, <laughs> I had a meeting at Sharon Stone's house with, uh, with the producer. <laughs> And they they wanted to remake this old movie, and um, and so I watched the movie, and then I came over to meet Sharon, and and we uh, you know I started to pitch my take on the movie, and I said I think it you know if you're going to update it, I would make this guy a politician, and 
And immediately somebody said, or an art gallery owner. <laughs> and I was just like, uh, okay, or, yeah, I guess you could do that. Or but a pet shop owner. It changes this pitch that I have prepared. So, and I, there was a lot of, I remember I went to a meeting and, um, and I had, I had written a screenplay of five women wearing the same dress. And I went to a meeting and there was this, this young woman, she, she must have just gotten out of college and she looked like Catherine Hepburn. And I remember she was wearing black velvet pants and she had requested a meeting with me. And I went into the meeting and she was like, um, so I read your script and, uh, I suppose I admire what you were trying to do, but, and I was just sort of like, well, okay, so why did you want to meet me? Why, <laughs> why am I here? Um, Cause she then proceeded to trash the script and tell me that ensemble uh, comedies didn't work. Of course. Um, but then after I won the Oscar, Every time I went into a meeting, everybody was sort of sitting there leaning forward, like listening to me. So it validated my thought, you know, if, in a way that I nothing else could have, I think. Mm. Um, so it was very, uh, it, it, it gave me a certain amount of freedom uh, in the stuff that I wanted to do. Uh, because, no. Go ahead. No, no, no. So, so. Yeah, it's 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 always it's very interesting with with Oscar winners because sometimes it's like it opens a lot of doors and other times it's like I had 15 minutes and then I'm back to the I'm back to the grindstone. So it all depends on how you capitalize. Uh, but I always tell people I would rather have one than not. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, even years later, it's like yeah, I won an Oscar, you know, for yeah. a screenplay. It's it's definitely a badge of honor for for any screenwriter's career regardless. Uh, yeah. of how it how it works out. Now, one thing I'd noticed in your filmography, though, is after winning the Oscar for American Beauty, you decided to kind of jump back into television and not continue the road of a, you know, prolific screenwriter doing movie after movie after movie. You said, no, I, I think television is where I want to be. And I want to hear why you decided to do that, because it, at least from my point of view, it seemed that the more there's a lot more exciting stuff happening, especially on HBO at that time in 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 the time in the time of the of of when you were starting to come into HBO, they were doing some really amazing stuff. I mean, the Sopranos, obviously, with David and and uh, and Sex and the City and all these kind of things that they were just breaking molds. So, is that what attracted you to back to television? Because you weren't doing sitcoms, obviously. You were like, no, I'm going to do something a little different. Well, I had signed a three year development deal uh, a week before I sold the script to American Beauty, oh. so I was committed to this to this TV development deal. And I created a sitcom for ABC that was called Oh Grow Up that was did not work and did not did not succeed. And actually, in 19 at the end of 1999, there was a people's best and worst uh, magazine, uh, people yeah. magazine, best and worst of 1999. And there was the top 10 movies. And American Beauty was one of them. And literally, you turn one page and it says the worst TV shows. <laughs> And my TV show, which was called Oh Grow Up, was there. And so at the time I was winning all this acclaim and stuff for, for American Beauty, I was also trying to salvage this sitcom that eventually got canceled. Um, so it was a great lesson in perspective. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I had, you know, so then I had, um, I had two years left on this development deal and I, I, I didn't want to just like say, fuck you guys, I'm gone. I I was trying to figure out what to do. And I kept being I kept taking these meetings about sitcoms. And it's like we, you know, we have a deal with this stand-up that we think you're perfect to write a show around them. And we have, you know, or I have, you know, we have this idea about a man who dies and is reincarnated as a dog and his wife get you know rescues him from the pound and she doesn't know he's her husband i'm like you know, please just shoot me <laughs> um and then i had a meeting with carolyn strauss from hbo who was head of original programming at the time and she said i've always wanted to do a show about a family-run funeral home and that something in my head clicked and i just went i can't i i i 
I spent a lot of time in funeral homes when I was growing up because um, people, a lot of people in my family died during a certain time. And so I had a very specific emotional con- feeling about what that show could be. And, um, and I went home for Christmas break uh, and I, I wrote the spec on pilot. I mean, I wrote the pilot on spec. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because I just was, I was dealing with grief because my sitcom had been canceled and all these people had been put out of work. And even though the show was bad, it was a great group of people and I was going to miss them. And I just sort of poured it all into this pilot for Six Feet Under. Got back to town after the holiday and and called my agent and said, uh, call HBO and tell them that that pilot, I wrote it. And, and she sent it over to them. Uh, my TV agent, Sue Nagel, uh, sent it over to them and they read it and they wanted a meeting. And I came in for this meeting and they said, we really like this. It feels a little safe. Um, is there any way you could just make it a, a little more fucked up? Uh, and I was like, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> I've been working in network TV for so many years. I just, you know, I always assumed, assumed <laughs> you know, that you have to, the, the notes that I would get in network TV were always, always could be distilled into two thoughts, make everybody nicer and articulate the subtext, mm. which are, yeah, terrible. You know, terrible, both of them yeah. are terrible. And so I did another pass on it and they said, great, we like it. We want to make it. Again, I was having an experience where everybody was saying, you know, it's not always like this. (laughs) So, okay. So I've been, ever since I saw Six Feet Under, if I ever get a chance to talk to Alan, I got to ask him these questions. Obviously, now you kind of explained a little bit that you had a, a little bit of an inside view of of a funeral home run by, I don't know if I run by family, but you, you inside funeral homes because the depth of what's happening. I'm like, did you like, did you do research? Did you jump into, did you hang out at funeral homes? Did you interview family run funeral homes? How did you get the details of stuff or did you make a lot of it up? Well, I read a book, um, a, a, a book called the American way of death, which is a book that was originally published in the sixties. And it is a sort of screed against the what refers to itself as the death care industry. Um, you know, just sort of saying it's so terrible and they, you know, people are, customers are, are at their most vulnerable and people are trying to sell them, you know, use that to sell them the most expensive casket because that means that you really loved the person who died. Um, and it went into a lot of detail about what happens with embalming and in the the uh, the the prep room and what what actually goes on with these bodies so that they can be looked at before you know they uh, go in the ground. Um, so I did do a lot of research. We had we had a, some consultants um, that we talked to, uh, but in terms of the story, in terms of the emotional arc of the characters and of the Fisher family. Um, I just made all that up. I mean, of course, it's based on I come from a very emotionally repressed family where people don't really deal with what's going on. So that that kind of found its way in there, too. But uh, it's fascinating that, you know, I had a chance to talk to David Chase on the show and finding out that The Sopranos was really about him and his mom's relationship was yeah. fascinating. And so it's, it seems that, you you know, a lot of these shows, it's the writer, the creator is pouring part of themselves in there. And that's what makes it sing, really yeah. does. It makes it sing. If you didn't it have makes that it personal. Yeah, it may. But but the audience feels the authenticity of it. Um, yeah. in in the writing and then obviously in the performances. And I mean, the whole beginning of each episode uh, <laughs> with the deaths, it's, it's just so brilliant, man. It's so mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant. Did you, did I mean, did you, I mean, obviously you came up with that and it was just like this gag that just, it was part of the story for, for the rest of the series. Yeah. Um, how, how did you come up with that? They're like, yeah, this would be a good way to start a show, <laughs> an episode. You know, I think it was just, it it was very obvious 
um, that that was the way to open each episode. Uh, you know, obviously we're going to need, obviously it's a story about a family. Yes. But it's also a story about America's relationship with death. You mm -hmm. know, very much so. so. And these are, and, and these people who work in these funeral homes are the people that we hire to face death for us. You know what I mean? We don't mm -hmm. do things like keep the body at home and, you know, the family washes the body and that kind of, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Right. Uh, so I, um, what was the question? I, I, no, the, the beginning of the show, the death of each. Yeah, it, it ultimately, you know, after, after the pilot was shot and HBO, we sent it to them on a Friday and they called on Monday and they said, let's go to series. So I was like, okay. And then I was sitting down to write the second episode and I was like, well, how do you start? And it was like, we started with a death, then we should, that's what everyone should do. And then that, that'll be, you know, the person who goes through and, and, and we can build the stories around that. So it, it turned into uh, the death of the week, kind of the way the hospital shows are the, you know, disease yeah. of the week, um, because it worked and it would, it, it was, uh, it, it just, I don't, I, I don't remember struggling a lot to figure that out. I remember it just sort of being obvious that that's what it should be. Well, let me ask you, what was the biggest struggle with telling these stories of, of that show, of like of those characters? Because, I mean, it was groundbreaking for David's character uh, mm -hmm. and, and you know, coming out. I mean, there's so many groundbreaking parts of that show. I mean, it is in the it's it's in the conversation every single time when you're like, oh, the great television revolution. Uh, you know, that started ar arguably with The Sopranos. Mm -hmm. And then you had, you know, the, the Breaking Bad, Six Feet Under. It's always in the conversation. Mm -hmm. What was the toughest part for you as a creator telling those stories and and specifically how those characters were kind of brought out into into the public the way they are, they were? I mean, the toughest part for me, I hate to say this, but it wasn't all that tough. I mean, working at HBO at that time, they wanted you know, a specific point of view. They wanted, you know, a voice. They, they weren't, I wasn't getting tons of notes to like, you know, bland everything out and make it palatable for the lowest common denominator um, or, or make it really um, resemble something that had already been successful. Uh, right. You know, they wanted something that felt new that was interesting uh, and um, and because they were working with a different business model than, you know, network television, we didn't have to worry about ratings, you know, and are the advertisers gonna be happy? Um, they just wanted a good show. They just wanted a show that would, would sort of, you couldn't see anywhere else. So the kind of freedom that we were given was, um was was great and i'm not sure it exists that much anymore um mm, not you know. much i mean they i mean yeah it's not it's there was a window of a good 10 15 there was a window there. and then i you know since i've you know stuff i've done since i've you know i mean i would get network i would get hbo's notes for six feet under and for true blood and it would be like three notes you know, and this, all tweak them, that. Yeah. yeah, and most of them made sense. And uh, but then later, later, you know, I did a show and I would get pages and pages of notes. And I, I, I it was just like, what, what, what? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it was it's it's been a it's the industry has changed a lot. And I'm trying to now I find myself at a place where I'm trying to figure out um, how to fit into it and how to uh, it's interesting it's interesting. yeah it's, it's it's a struggle with a lot of creators i mean the, the business changes so rapidly i mean yeah. you know show a show like six feet under or true blood could have never come out in the 90s or the 80s I and mean, then that wouldn't right. be, it just wouldn't have ex existed right. and it's so well let me ask you this and please remind me because i know david's character as a gay character on on six feet under 
how many other gay characters were on television prior to his character? I mean, it was pretty, I remember it was pretty like, oh, the, wow. It's the first time like you're treating a gay character. It's not a token character. It's not a, as a funny sidekick. It's like, oh, this is a real human being with real feelings and, you know, who's a real person. I mean, I think there was, I think there had been a bunch there. There was a, a, an auxiliary character on 30 something who was gay and right. they showed him in bed with another man and like everybody's heads exploded and, <laughs> and ABC removed that from reruns or something like that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now, while we were on the air, Will and Grace came out. Yeah. Because I remember there's a there's a scene where Nate catches David watching gay porn and and David is like mortified and Nate is like, come on, David, I watch Will and Grace. I have gaydar. So I know <laughs> Will and Grace was on the air. I think uh, I think Queer as Folk uh, was on the air as well. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I can't remember if that was on Showtime or what what platform. where it was. Yeah, but. Yeah. But, but that I character think was... in terms of in terms of and both of those shows were like everybody's gay. You know, this is a this is a show about gay life, whereas mm -hmm. David was just a character within a family. And the show wasn't so much about gay life as about this one gay man struggling to come to terms with uh, his own internalized homophobia. Um, right. Well, let me ask you this. Um when you sit down to tell a story, what is like, what is your process? Do you outline? I mean, how do you face the blank page? Which is always the, every, every writer's dread is that blank, that blinking cursor, not the blank, but that blinking cursor. How, do you outline a lot? Do you just sit down and just start stream of consciousness? How do you approach a new project? If I'm writing, if, if I'm writing something for myself, uh, and, a, and like a, a, a spec pilot or a spec screenplay, um, I don't outline because for me to outline, it becomes, well, okay, that's the story. I've told the story. <laughs> <laughs> the story is told. So now I'm going to go back to the beginning and just it. Um, so, and I, I like the journey of discovery, you know, I'll things will percolate and I'll think about something and I'll think about the character and I'll think about what is the opening and, and I'll, I'll, I'll have a lot of that figured out before I sit down to write. But if I'm working on a show, everything is outlined. Absolutely. Because other people are going to be going off and writing scripts. You can't just say like, okay, everybody just go write what you feel. You have to, you have to outline right. what's going on so that it tracks over the course of the season. And um, so that's, but, but on my own, I don't outline. But but, but you feel let me let me be honest. I have like a drawer full of scripts that I started that never that I never finished because, because I just ran out of steam or I didn't know where how to make it go anywhere or whatever. And and also I think you know for young screenwriters thinking that like you see Alan Ball doesn't doesn't outline. I don't need to outline. I'm like well there's a difference too. You've been doing this for how many years? <laughs> you know so it's like you already a lot of the things that you would work out in an outline as far as pacing and, and, and arc and, and structure and plots and all that. You have that almost innately in the back of your head and your subconscious when you're writing already because you've done it so many times. So it's not like you, a lot of, I mean, because I know a lot of writers who do that, they'll just kind of stream of consciousness and just go and then go back and tweak. Mm -hmm. But but because you have this base, you can do that. As, as a young writer, it would probably be not a smart idea to just start, let's just write and see what happens. But it depends, also I guess. Also, I think everybody has their own technique. I don't believe, yeah. you know, and I think part of one's journey as an artist, as a writer, is to discover what that technique is and to be true to it. Um, for some people, you know, outline everything extreme, you know, very intricately before they start uh, writing the script and it works. You know, some people do stream of consciousness and it works for them. Uh, I, I always I'm always a little bit leery of of any, any formula for for what is what is storytelling, because I think 
the minute you do that, you're limiting yourself. Mm -hmm. There are formulas that work for certain people, but they don't work for other people, you know. So ultimately, it's up to the it's up to each person to discover their own technique, what works best for them. Now, Alan, I imagine that I know, you know, you had a good start with American Beauty, a fantastic start. I'm assuming it wasn't yeses the entire way through your career. I'm assuming you've had a couple of no's along the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How, what advice can you give people who are at that place in their career where they're just getting the no, the no, the no? What did you do to just keep moving forward? Even early on, uh, I'm imagining even during the Grace uh, Grace Under Fire and Sybil times, you were getting no's left and right or being rewritten or being overruled. And, and that was where that frustration line. And how did you keep going? Because a lot of people would have just said, you know what, screw this Hollywood crap. I'm just going to go back and be a playwright. I don't need this. I want to go back and be, you know, a, a, an important writer with my 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 stories that I want to tell that are important to me. You know, mm -hmm. but you decided to keep going and keep going. Down. So what was it that what advice can you give and what did you do to just keep going? Um, I mean, a lot of people say, like, what, what should I do? Uh, I, I think you should just, one of the things I learned when I was working in, as a playwright in New York with our little guerrilla theater companies and everything is we weren't waiting for permission. We were putting on a show at midnight on Thursday that maybe 10 people came to see, but we were still putting on a show. You know, and I think I would say, do it yourself, especially now when you can make a movie on your iPhone. You know, uh, if if you're getting no, then do something. Start short. Start short. Start something short. Do like a five minute film, but do it yourself. Make it. Get your friends to work on it. Make it. Make it with your iPhone. It's not going to go. You know, it's probably not going to go become like an award-winning short at festivals, but it might. And at the very least, what you have learned from making that is things that you can only learn by making things. And if you're sitting around waiting for permission, waiting for somebody to give you permission, maybe they will, most likely they won't, because, you know, I think most everything that gets submitted gets turned down. Um, I mean, I'm dealing with that now. I just, I just, uh, my producing partner and I, you know, submitted four scripts of a of a TV series that I think I was super proud of, and everybody passed on it. I don't know if it was, I don't know if it's because it was too expensive or because there we didn't have any stars attached. Because it seems like TV has become that you have to have a movie star attached or a TV star attached. Um, but it's frustrating. And if you are creatively, if you are organically connected to your work emotionally, which I feel like is an important is important for work to feel really personal and 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 emotional, um, when it gets passed on, it's going to hurt. Um, but you just you can't give up. You can't give up. You know, no. just keep going and and ultimately figure out ways to do it on do it yourself. Now, before I move on to um, True Blood, I have to just say th to thank you for arguably one of the greatest last episodes on Six Six Feet Under. It it is it is a a, a tightrope that is 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 walked by many a show creator <clears throat> on on the ending of a show, and yeah. it is one of the most beautiful endings. So satisfying, so wonderful. Arguably, you couldn't end it any other way. I mean, exactly. and we won't ruin it for people who haven't seen it. But it is, it was just so beautifully done. And I just felt so warm inside at the end of that. I'm like, okay, I, I, I can let go of these characters now, yeah. as opposed to, you know, just cutting to Black David or, uh, <laughs> or many other shows that just, it's, it's hard to nail that ending, to, to nail yeah. the ending of a show. So I wanted to thank you for that because it was just, it was, it was wonderful. I was, I was scared too, by the way, as I was going through last season, I'm like, Oh God, how are they going to finish this, man? How are they going to finish this? Please don't let me down. Please. I've, I've spent <laughs> hours and hours and hours on this show. Please don't, don't drop the ball, Alan, please. Yeah. So it was so beautiful that you guys did it so well. So I just wanted to thank you for that. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, True Blood, another, you know, iconic show. How did you get involved with that? Because that wasn't an original, that wasn't an original uh, idea that was based off a series of books. How did you get involved? Uh, 
I had a dental appointment <laughs> in the Valley and in Encino. And I was, uh, I got there early, like, you know, an hour early. Oh, wow. So I, there was a Barnes and Noble nearby and I went and I was just perusing books and I was, and I saw this book and uh, it was called Dead Until Dark. And the, the log line on the cover was maybe having a vampire for a boyfriend wasn't such a good idea. And I thought, oh, that's funny. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I looked at it, it's a little book. And, um, and so I bought it and I started reading it in the waiting room and it was like crack. Um, and I remember at that point, there were four books. She originally wrote, I mean, she uh, eventually wrote 13. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was all about this world where vampires came out of the closet because of this synthetic, uh, blood that they could drink. And, uh, and it was just, uh, you know, I'm from the South. I, I, that whole Southern Gothic thing is in my blood. And, uh, I just remember reading it and I couldn't put it down. Um, it was just such a great world and such great characters and so much fun. Um, oh yeah. You know, and I think after six feet under, I think I just wanted to do something that was really fun. And so I called the, uh, I had my agent call the woman who wrote it and, uh, it was under option by a filmmaker, but it was about to run out. And I said, well, I'd like to purchase it. And I'd like to, and I bought the rights and um, wrote the script uh, on spec, uh, took it to HBO. And they said, we have a vampire show in development. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll you know, I'll take it somewhere else. And they were like, no, you can't, you can't go anywhere else because you know, you're part of the HBO family. And I said, well, Put yeah, up or but, shut up. <laughs> yeah. And they did. They, they, they killed that other show. And I feel really, really bad about the, you know, about the person who was working on that show. Um, but uh, I remember Chris Albrecht was still there and he called me and he, before they said, let's go ahead and do it. He called me and he said, just give me a one, one sentence thing. What is this show about? And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know. What am I going to say? Uh, it's about the terrors of intimacy. Which is something I just pulled out of my ass. You know, I, I guess it's kind of true, but but uh, sure, went, I, get, I can see, you that. know, and he went, OK, all right. And they they greenlit it and we shot the pilot. And then. And then it took a, and Chris, Chris had left at that time, and it was Richard Pletler and Mike Lombardo who were in charge and. It seemed like they were going to pass on it and they, and it seemed like we were, you know, that it, it had taken like a couple of months. We hadn't heard back. They were still oh, deliberating. Wow. And finally they, they said yes. And, uh, and we made the pilot and, uh, and we made the series. And it is, and I mean, the stuff that you did in that show, I mean, you, you could tell you were having some fun. Oh my God, it was so much fun. Oh my God, the characters were so brilliantly written and acted. I mean, it was like a magical, each actor was magically designed for the character that was written on the page. It was so beautiful. Exactly. And and uh, I mean, let's not even talk about the sex stuff. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, it was, you're just sitting there like, we got to keep the kids out of the room. We got to lock the door when we watch True Blood at night. Yeah. <laughs> they could just walk in on the wrong scene and all of a sudden, <laughs> it was. Totally. It was so much fun to watch that show. Now, I know, you know, and, and I know you directed uh, a little bit on on a bunch of your shows. Uh, on set, there's always that day that you feel like the entire world's coming crashing down around you. As a filmmaker, we all have those days, regardless of budget, regardless of anything. What was that day for you, either on Six Feet Under or any of your shows for that matter? What was that day that you felt like, oh man, I'm not sure how we're going to get out of this? What was that thing, if you could talk about it publicly, and how did you overcome that event in the day as a filmmaker? Um, 
I remember there was an episode of Six Feet Under. I think it was the I think it was this season finale of uh, season one. And there was uh, Rico and Vanessa are having a, a party for their um, for for their they just recently had a, a second child and they're having a christening party and they're doing it at the funeral home. And for some reason, we just got so behind. You know, and it was like we've been working for you know ten hours already, and we have at least five hours we left to we have left to do, and we can't push it off to another day because this is the last day that we're shooting. And I remember just feeling like, oh my god, I'm such a failure. I'm such a failure that I had that I that I allowed things to get this far behind. Um, and uh but we you know we worked overtime and we got it and we got everything we needed we simplified the shot list but there was a moment where i felt i don't i have no idea what i'm doing and it's it's about to come out and everybody's going to see what a big imposter i am and and you know and and it's 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 fascinating too because as i've talked to you know, more and more high profile people on the show like yourself who have had some, you know, Oscar winners, Emmy winners, things like that. I always find it so fascinating. And I, I think so educational for people listening that, you know, a lot of times they put, you know, people like yourself and other, you know, Oscar winners up on a pedestal, like, oh, they just, they must just wake up in the morning and it's probably, you know, I'll just write an Oscar winning script today, or I'll just write, you know, I'll just write <laughs> six foot under, or I'll just, I'll just whip up true blood. Like the, these things uh, I found to, after speaking to so many people like yourself, that imposter syndrome is a thing. It's oh, yeah. still a thing. So even at the day that you're talking about, you'd already won an Oscar. Yes. Uh, you might have won an Emmy, or, or I'm not sure, but you were on the way. You won Golden Globes. You had won a lot of awards already. You were an award-winning writer and, and filmmaker. And at, you still, at that moment, had like, oh, my God, security is going to come in and they're going to find out what a fraud I am and I'm going to be escorted off the set. And that was the feeling that you had still had after the success you had. And it's, I think, such, an such a wonderful educational tool for people coming up to understand that throughout your career, it never leaves you. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it never does. It never does. I have such a weird relationship to if I'm if I'm about if I'm finishing a script and I'm doing that last polish of it. I'll read it and I'll be going, this is really good, man. I really love, I think I, I think I did something really great here. Close it, file, you know, turn it to PDF, send it off to my agent. The minute I send it off, I'm like, oh, there's a typo. Oh, fuck. And then, and then from there, it just completely unravels. It's like, why is this scene even here? What the fuck are they saying? This is the worst dialogue I've ever read in my entire life. And so, wow. you know. I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, insecurity and uh, it fuels a lot of uh, people to become, to express themselves in ways that uh, I think they probably wouldn't do if they were a little, had a little more self-esteem. I think a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of great work comes from people who are working out their own uh, inner neuroses. Team. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if you if you had a chance to go back in time and talk to your younger self and you could tell that person one thing, if you were on that when you were making those off off Broadway plays and you, and the Alan Allen Ball of today could go back and just say one thing to that per, to that Allen Ball about mm -hmm. what the journey is about to be he's going to go on is what would be that warning or piece of advice? Well, I, 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 at first I thought I'd say, don't take the sitcom job, but I, I, <laughs> no, you had, you had I to. had to, I had to, and I wouldn't, I, I would just say like, try to keep, keep your perspective. Ultimately it's, it's just a movie. It's just a TV show. It's not worth making yourself crazy about. It's not worth destroying relationships over. It's just, it's, it's not real life. You know, because I get so invested in my work that it, it becomes like, you know, when when my sitcom for ABC uh, got canceled, I got really depressed. Um, and 
in in retrospect, if that show hadn't been canceled, I would never have done Six Feet Under. You know what I mean? And I guess I would I would just say like try to take your work seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously, and 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 don't take praise and or criticism that seriously because ultimately you do the work that you do you do the best work that you can do and that's the reward whether you get a a, you know a statue or a nice review or somebody pans you or we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show your show gets canceled that stuff is just weather you know it changes it always changes and just stay focused on being true to yourself and don't and also don't compare yourself to other people you know don't compare yourself to other writers or other directors um because you just don't it's, <laughs> it's it's so tough though i mean we've you're been doing always gonna find somebody that you feel like is better than you and that you feel inferior to and that's and just don't don't feed that particular demon um before i go to my last few questions i always ask i just have to say in banshee because i know you worked on banshee um the fight sequence in the jail one of the most brutal things i've ever seen filmed it is <laughs> it is a it is an uh, an art piece <laughs> and how you how in god's green earth did you guys do that in the way that you did it it was so brutal and and not it was violent and brutal but it it's visceral yeah. in the way it was shot how did you guys uh, get that i mean it's amazing. well you know i was i was uh like an exec producer on banshee sure. i was not really that involved in the the um day-to-day day-to-day so that was <clears throat> that was Jonathan Tropper, uh, writer, and um, Greg Utanis, director, and <clears throat> Anthony Starr, um, who is now on The Boys, uh, was just a really, or just a, a really genius. I mean, he was he was so good in that role. Um, I mean, I, I gave notes on it on 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 cuts, uh, but usually I would just be like, oh, good. I got a banshee cut because it would just be fun to watch because they were doing such amazing work, you know, and I really wasn't that involved. So I can't really take credit for that. OK, fair enough. But it was for anyone watching. You got to watch that sequence. Watch the show. Yeah. but Watch that sequence. Yeah, that's a, it's a good show. It was a very, very good show. Um, now I'm going to ask you a few questions. To ask all my guests. What advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? Uh, first and foremost, write about what you care about. Don't write about what you think will sell. Don't write a, uh, write about something that matters to you, um, because that that's going to infuse it with uh, uh, a level of personal passion that hopefully will make you know make it rise to the top of uh, because everybody's writing scripts that they think will sell. Everybody's writing scripts that resemble something that have that has already been successful. Mm-hmm. So I would say write what you care about. I would agree because American Beauty is not like anything that anybody had written before or since. And there's mm-hmm. there's not like an American Beauty type of script. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so without question. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? That failure is part of it, you know, if you, if you, if you insist on seeing things as success or failure, um, you're going to, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, failure is part of it. Sometimes you, you're never going to get to a place, nor should you want to, I think, where everything you do is good because you're, because to grow as a writer, to grow as an artist, you have to try things. You have to try things. And not everything's going to fly. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're a, you, you're a shitty writer and you've lost your touch or whatever. It just means that that's part of it. Uh, and try not to take it too personally and 
just keep going, you know? Yeah, take the big swings is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Without question. Uh, yeah. Three screenplays that every screenwriter should read. Three screenplays at every screenplay. Well, Chinatown. Yeah. Um, I would say Nashville. Oh, so good. Um, so good. I'm stuck on this third one. Uh, Anything that comes to mind. Well, one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, The Apartment. Oh God, yes, Jack Lemmon, so good. <laughs> it still holds today. The timing, the jokes, the way they popped it. You know, a lot of movies from the sixties do not hold from today. I know. But the apartment still holds. And what are what are I always ask? What three of your favorite films of all time? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, um, I, Nashville, and Chinatown, uh, and The Apartment. I mean, those are three of my favorite films too. Um, well, Alan, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with all of us. Hopefully it inspires a few screenwriters and filmmakers out there. And thank you for all the hard work and great stories you've been telling over the course of your career. You, you're making a difference out there, not only entertaining, but shaping the young minds of people out there. Oh, wow. <laughs> thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate it's you, It's such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I, I'm really glad that we did this. I want to thank Alan so much for coming on the show and sharing his journey with all of us today. Thank you so much, Alan. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmWelser.com forward slash 650. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.